Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Dr. Kerry Lewis at Exeter Phoenix, March 2018. So I'm a marine biologist and at Exeter I run a research lab basically looking at anthropogenic stresses and my research particularly focuses on climate change, pollution, including plastics, impacts on the smaller marine animals that live in our oceans, the marine invertebrates, things without backbones, so mussels, crabs, copepods, things like that. And probably the first 12 years of my career, I basically sat in rock pools or muddy estuaries in the UK. And I always thought that those amazing adventures, the things that we've been watching on Blue Planet 2, people snorkeling coral reefs or going off to the polar regions, was something cool that other people did. And for me, this all very much changed. One day, I was sat in my office at Exeter University, sort of Christmas 2009, and my phone rang. And uh, there was a guy called Tim at the end of the phone. It's like, Kerry, we're looking for people who work on ocean acidification to come to the Arctic with us. Would you like to come? Uh, <laughs> I worked on ocean acidification. I'm like, well, I work on ocean acidification, but the Arctic? I've never been to the Arctic. Why are you phoning me? But I didn't say that. I kind of, kind of, sort of gulped a few times and then went, yeah, okay. Um, and that was that. I had no idea what I had just agreed to do, but it sounded cool and I thought, well... I don't really know what I'm signing up for. Okay, so I'm just going to say yes, and I'll worry about the how I'm going to make this happen later. And so I signed up for the Catlin Arctic Survey, thinking it was probably going to involve staying in a nice base somewhere and then going out onto the ice, maybe in a boat. I hadn't realised I'd just agreed to go camping at minus 40 for 30 days. And this whole idea was put together by a chap called Pen Haddo. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard of Pen Haddo. He's a bit of a local hero. He's based on Dartmoor for many years. Pen was the first person to walk solo and unsupported to the North Pole from land. And during his expeditions, Penn had been watching the Arctic change. He could see it before his eyes. There was more swimming involved in getting to the North Pole than when he'd started. He could see these changes happening. And he decided that he wanted to do something about it. But Penn's not a scientist. He's an explorer. But he wanted to help scientists get the data that we need to actually really document these changes. And he'd started off the, the Catlin Arctic Survey in 2009 where he'd taken another team of explorers, so proper polar explorers, and they went and they collected sea ice data. So they were drilling holes through the ice, measuring the depth of the ice at different locations on their journey to the North Pole. And they were basically trying to contribute to the data on how this sea ice was thinning and changing. But they'd been quite heavily criticised when they came back. None of the data got published because they weren't scientists and their techniques weren't quite robust enough to get through normal peer review process. And so Penn had decided that the best way around this was to take scientists with him. And so that's why I got a phone call and a few other people got phone calls inviting us to go out with them on the next expedition. And this expedition, rather than measuring sea ice thickness, was to look at this process, ocean acidification. It's often referred to as climate change's evil twin because it's also driven by increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. 
The oceans take up about a third of that carbon dioxide. They always have. It's a natural part of the carbon cycle. As that CO2 dissolves into seawater, it forms this weak acid, carbonic acid, that very quickly breaks down into hydrogen ions and bicarbonate ions. Now, obviously, it's the hydrogen ions that drive pH. So as hydrogen ion concentration goes up, pH goes down. But our oceans are fantastically buffered. So pH in our oceans has been very, very stable for the last 300 million years because it's full of carbonate ions, which act as a buffer. They soak up these hydrogen ions and keep the pH stable. Now, carbonate ions enter the oceans through natural weathering of rocks. So the White Cliffs of Dover is full of chalk. As that weathers, that's putting carbonate into our oceans. But obviously, that's quite a slow process. Now, the problem with ocean acidification is we are now putting CO2 into the atmosphere at such a fast rate, we are now overwhelming this buffering capacity of the ocean. And so we're now starting to see the pH drop. So the pH that's been stable for millions of years is now changing at a faster rate than we have ever measured before or that we can see in geological history. Now, it's not just the pH changing. It means it's using up this buffering ion, which is the carbonate ion. That's being used up to soak up these hydrogen ions. And carbonate is important because an awful lot of marine animals use it to make their shells or skeletons. So as the carbonate ion concentration in seawater goes down, the ability of these animals to make their shells becomes decreased. And when the saturation drops, sometimes actually these shells will start to dissolve slowly. Now, carbon dioxide dissolves into cold water much more readily than warm water. So our polar regions are taking up much more of this carbon dioxide. And the Arctic is a, is a circular basin with a lot of fresh water input into it, which means it's got less carbonate buffering capacity, so less ability to cope with that increasing carbon dioxide. And that means ocean acidification is happening first and fastest in the Arctic. And this is a little animation that shows this. So here, this is us going into the future, and as the colours go from blue to orange and red, that's the water becoming undersaturated, so corrosive to marine animals with calcium carbonate shells. So you can see it happens really quite quickly in the Arctic. Eventually the Antarctic catches up and it's changing in the tropics, but you never get quite so corrosive as these Arctic waters. So this is where we really need to be studying ocean acidification. But obviously the Arctic is covered in sea ice for a large portion of the year. And most of our ships that go out and take all of the samples needed to study this process can't get there for a good six months of the year. So our understanding of how this process is happening is really limited. We have little windows of opportunity where we have data, but there's large gaps in our knowledge of what's happening. So Penn decided to drop a bunch of scientists on the ice, whilst there was two metres of ice under us, to start to fill in some of those gaps. He also obviously needed his big explorer expedition to get the headlines in the newspapers. And so we had a team of three explorers who were going to walk to the North Pole. They were collecting water samples as they went, whereas us scientists who had no idea how to manhaul and probably wouldn't have survived that trip were placed in a sea ice camp, basically in the safest place that we could set up a camp for a large period of time. We needed to be somewhere where the ice was really stable so we could have tents. And the way the Arctic works is that the prevailing wind is basically coming from the Russian side and pushing the ice towards Canada. So the ice tends to pile up this side of the Arctic and be a bit more stable there. So we were as far away from land as we could be 
on the edge of the Arctic Basin where there was enough sea ice for a plane to land and for us to put up our tents. And this was our home for, for me, 35 days. And we need to go when there's daylight. Obviously, the Arctic is dark 24 hours a day for most of the winter. And then it very, very quickly changes to become 24 hours daylight. But we also needed it to be cold enough that the ice was really stable. So we had quite a short window when we, it was safe to be there in that there was some daylight, but that the ice was stable enough for us to set up our camp. So obviously, the, the first thing everyone uh, wants to know about is, you know, how cold? How cold was it? when you were there. So this is a good day. This is probably minus 25. You can tell it's not too cold because we've got skin showing, but you can see it's relatively cold. We've got, you know, our hairs and eyelashes are frozen. You can see a bit of breath freezing on our clothes, but we're quite happy at this point. More often or not, <laughs> it was like this. The first year that we went, so I went two years, I went in 2010 and 2011. The first year it started off minus 45, but it gradually warmed up so that by the time we were leaving, it was actually minus 18. And by comparison, that felt roasting, so we were in t-shirts at that point. But the second year we went in 2011, it was below minus 40 pretty much every day for 35 days. And that's tough. So imagine your freezer at home where you've got your frozen peas is minus 20. So that's happy faces, um, and then take that down another 20 degrees and you're starting to realise what it's like. I mean, you get used to it, but it's really hard to explain. You, you don't get cold, things just start hurting. So you go from being fine to, ow, everything hurts. We were told to just eat chocolate. Whenever you start to feel a bit cold, um, eat chocolate. I'm like, okay, that sounds good, but it really works. Your body starts to behave quite differently when you're living constantly at that temperature. Food becomes fuel and your metabolism just ramps up so that when you eat a bar of chocolate, you instantly burn it and you warm up. So you had to have a bar of chocolate before you went to bed every night. Oh no, I think it was about 3,000 calories, 4,000 calories a day, most of it being chocolate. Um, but you can see everything is frozen and obviously we're working with seawater, which freezes pretty quickly. The, the temperature of seawater under the ice, because seawater being salty, freezes slightly lower than fresh water, but it still freezes at minus 1.8. So we had two metres of sea ice and then this minus 1.8 seawater. So the air was a lot colder than the seawater. So you'd bring out these samples and they would start freezing as soon as you'd got them out. Your hands would get wet, they would start freezing. All of your clothes would start freezing. Your goggles would freeze up really quickly. So trying to get anything done in these conditions was really quite challenging. One day um, when it was, it was minus 40 air temperature and there was a wind blowing, it was minus 70 wind chill. And we were not out for very long in that at all. But the Arctic is beautiful. What was fascinating for me was how different it looked every day according to the light or the snow or the wind. So this is one of the beautiful clear days when the ice just seemed to glow blue and the rainbows would come out because there's so many ice crystals in the air because all the moisture is frozen. So you get rainbows everywhere, everything sparkles, everything glistens and the wind would blow the snow around. So one day there'd be a snowdrift one place and you'd come out the next day thinking you knew where it was and face plant straight into it because it moved overnight. So it's a really dynamic environment. It was literally different every day. So these are our science tents. We had two science tents. This is our mess tent. And then these are our sleeping tents over here. So we were sleeping in unheated tents. And this is because the, the biggest killer in the Arctic isn't actually the cold. You can, you can cope with the cold. You can put specialist clothing on. You can eat lots of chocolate. You can look after yourself. The biggest killer in the Arctic is actually carbon monoxide poisoning because those stoves don't burn particularly well at minus 40 
and if you've got a stove in your tent when you're asleep, you can very easily poison yourself. We were inexperienced polar explorers, and so we were just not sleeping in heated tents. So we were sleeping in minus 40. Um, so this is what you look like when you wake up. Um, obviously, you're breathing moist air, which freezes as soon as it comes out. And so we had this whole ritual of getting into your sleeping bag. So we had a, a fleece liner, then we had the big, lovely, and it wasn't down because that freezes, so it's a synthetic mass, it's about that thick sleeping bag, and then an over bag that goes on the top. And the reason for that is obviously you do sweat, even though it's minus 40, the moisture leaves your body, but then it will freeze. And you don't want it freezing in your main sleeping bag because then you will never get warm again. So the whole point of these outer bags was that it would freeze on the outer bag away from your skin. Um, and then you have to basically make this little hole so everything's closed apart from the hole that you breathe out because if you breathe into your bag, it will freeze. So we'd have this little hole that you breathe out and that would be it and everything else would be inside your bag. And then you'd wake up like this knowing as soon as you try and move to get out of this concoction, all of that snow is going to fall in your face. So that was the lovely morning ritual. And this is our saviour, the mess tent. Food was so important to us. Um, and we had an amazing polar chef, Fran, who came with us. She does one season north, the other season south, and she is just a polar chef. Thank goodness for Fran, because she really kept us going. Um, this was uh, another superstar of our trip, Tuck, the polar bear dog. So obviously polar bears are, uh, are, are very dangerous and something we had to be very careful with. We were a very long way away from any open water, and that's where the polar bears tend to, to hunt for the seals. But we still had to be careful, and so we had Tuck with us. As you can see from the background, you know, you can barely see the difference between sky and ice. Um, and a polar bear is pretty white. If a polar bear was coming across the horizon, we wouldn't see it until it was a bit too close for comfort. Um, we all had to do shotgun training. We all had bear flares in our pockets, but we would much rather, you know, warn it away when it's, you know, a safe distance and, and it's not getting too dangerously close. So Tuck was specially trained as a polar bear dog. He's a local Inuit dog, and he basically just barks like mad if he gets to the scent of a polar bear. Um, and he did it a couple of times, but he would run off into the ice rubble that surrounded our base, barking crazily, and then and would come back very happy. And, and clearly, you know, if there had been a polar bear there, it had just decided not to, not to bother us. So he was a, a real comfort having him around. It meant we could be safe. We didn't have to be looking behind us all the time. He also was just a great mascot. He'd come and greet us as we came out of our tents every morning and he was just really good to have around. So we were there at this time of year when the Arctic is going through this big change. It's going from dark 24 hours a day, thick ice, big winter storms, to the sun coming up and it changes from 24 hours darkness to 24 hours daylight really quite quickly. It's within the space of two months. And so that causes some really dramatic changes in what's happening under the sea ice. The ice starts to thin, the light starts to get through, the plankton starts to bloom, and life sort of comes back to life after the deep, dark winter. And that's really important to understand, but it's also really important for that carbonate chemistry, because phytoplankton uses up carbon dioxide for photosynthesis, but then all of these um, copepods respire CO2. So we, we were interested in how this change impacted the carbonate chemistry now, without worrying about future ocean acidification, just to understand these processes and what the baseline is. And then we wanted to start looking to see what would happen if we took these animals into the future a little bit. So we were really interested in following these changes 
under the sea ice as the ice thinned and as the light came up. To do that, we needed a hole. We needed a hole in the ice. And this Helen, it's two metres of ice. It took her eight hours with this uh, ice drill. And this is our little tent that we put over the top. You see, we have got a little stove in there. And that's because we didn't want our kit freezing as we were trying to work with it. We also wanted to try and keep that ice hole open as much as possible. Otherwise, we would spend half our time clearing it out. We still had to chip away uh, a good sort of few centimetres of ice on the top every morning. So we were looking at current carbonate chemistry conditions under this winter sea ice because all the measurements have been done when it's open water. We don't even know what the baseline was in the winter before we started taking these measurements. So this is a big piece of kit that goes down, measures temperature, salinity, depth, and then we take discrete water samples to measure the carbonate chemistry. And how does that change with depth? This is the other... Um, piece of kit that we used. It's called a Niskin bottle. It basically takes discrete water samples at various depths. So you put it down, it's basically a tube and then it closes. And so you can tell if it's come from 200 metres or 100 metres or 50 metres depth. This is a really nice demonstration of this difference between the seawater temperature and the air temperature. You can see it's steaming. That's not because it's warm, but the, the seawater is at minus 1.8, the air temperature is minus 40, and so you get this real steamy effect that you could almost convince yourself you're in a sauna, except, except you're really cold. Now, my job on the expedition was to really look at the animals at the bottom of the food chain, so the zooplankton. There's a whole sort of range of tiny little uh, planktonic uh, animals that live under the sea ice, and I was putting my plankton net up and down every day to really see how the community of these organisms changed as we went through this sort of winter-spring transition period. Could I see any changes in the community that would match up with changes in the water chemistry? So I would put my plankton net down, I'd collect all my samples, and then I had to get it back to my little science tent without it freezing. So we had these little Yeti containers with full of hot water bottles, and I'd go as fast as I could, which wasn't really that fast, um, back to my science tent, spent hours looking down a microscope. So, you know, you're in this amazing environment, you're on an expedition, and yet I'm still sat at a microscope counting things. It's a whole, whole different experience counting things in the Arctic. I was finding these chaps. So these are copepods, about half a millimetre in size, but there are billions of them in the ocean. You find them all over the globe and they form that really important link between the tiny, tiny plants, the phytoplankton in the ocean, and those larger fish and, and marine mammals. Because they're very, very efficient filter feeders. They can capture those small particles, converting these tiny little plants into really high energy fat, which makes them this fantastic food source for everything else. So I was really interested in looking at the copepod community, looking at how they change and then looking at their responses to ocean acidification. And there was two species I was really finding in my plankton nets. This is an Arctic endemic. You only find it in the Arctic Ocean, Calanus glacialis. And then this tiny, tiny copepod is global. You find it everywhere in the world's oceans, but it's much smaller. So I was really interested in seeing, you know, are these two quite different copepods behaving differently? under my ice. Now, obviously, when we first got there, we were having darkness. So we wanted to see a 24-hour sampling period, see if what happens in the daylight is different to what happens in the darkness. And then by the end of our trip, it was 24 hours daylight. This is a, a reading from, a, a, it's a device called an ADCP. It's basically like a sonar. It's reflecting particles. So you can see if there's things moving in the water. So here is our copepods at the surface, and then you can see they disappear. So this is going through our 24-hour periods. So what this tells us is that we get these high concentrations of small particles, copepods, at the surface during 
the darkness, and then they disappear during the daylight hours. And this is something that we know that a lot of zooplankton do because they're really, really tasty food. They tend to um, feed on the surface where the plankton is during the darkness, and then they migrate. And they can migrate hundreds of metres into the deep, dark ocean where visual predators are less likely to be able to see them to avoid that predation during daylight hours. For a long time, it, nobody really knew if they were doing this in the Arctic when you have 24 hours of darkness, whether it happened under sea ice because it's pretty dark under sea ice. So we found this really interesting that we were still seeing this strong sort of 24-hour pattern um, despite the fact that these animals are living under um, two metres of sea ice. And what this means when we matched up our behaviour of the copepods with the chemistry we were measuring is that our large copepods that are doing this daily migration up and down through the water column are swimming through quite a big pH gradient. So the colours represent pH, red colours are the, the lower pHs, and this is higher pH. So actually our large copepods are already experiencing a gradient. And the reason you have this more acidic water with depth is because things drop out of the surface and rot, and as things rot, they release CO2. So you get this natural density uh, sort of gradient with, with depth of higher CO2 with the deeper water. My tiny little copepods, however, weren't showing that behaviour. We only ever saw them in the surface waters, and so they weren't experiencing big changes in pH on a daily basis. They had very stable conditions. So then I did my time machine experiment. I wanted to take my copepods into the future to see how they respond to the conditions we're expecting to see if we continue burning carbon dioxide at the rate we are. Because we're expecting to see the pH change quite dramatically in the next 25 years because pH is on a logarithmic scale. Um, we're looking at um, pH dropping by 0.5 of a pH unit. That's a 120% increase in hydrogen ion concentration. So we're expecting the changes to be quite dramatic over the next sort of 25 to 50 years. What I was doing here was manipulating water chemistry in little bottles and then putting my copepods in and seeing how they respond to those changed conditions. Now, temperature affects everything way more than pH or food, and temperature in our tents was so hard to control. Depending on how strong the wind was blowing, everything could freeze. So we had to come up with a slightly unusual way to run these experiments. Back in my lab, I've got my lovely temperature control rooms. We made ourselves an under-ice incubator, and we were dangling our bottles off basically a washing line, um, and then our copepods were basically exposed to the natural temperature that they would be normally in, in the sea under the ice. But it did mean it froze quite regularly, and one day I couldn't get my bottles out. It was just at the end of my experiment, I was desperate for my data, and I got, I got to the hole, and there was this perfectly round space, everything else had frozen, so a seal had clearly been, and broken the ice, and had knitted all of my bottles together, and I couldn't get them out. And I had to take my gloves off and literally untie these knotted frozen ropes to get my experiment out. And the pain I experienced by the time it took me to get these bottles out and get them into my tray and run to my science tent, it felt like someone was banging my fingers with a massive hammer. It was so painful. And my fingers have never been the same since. But I got my data, so I think it was worth it. But a few people did shout at me for doing that. It was, it was quite unpleasant. But it enabled me to get this really cool data that basically told us that all that's on here is survival. And you see, we're not really seeing much an effect of our future ocean conditions on these lovely large copepods. They're handling it pretty well. These are their babies. They were more sensitive. We started to see them not coping with those conditions so well. So the adults who do that vertical migration every day, they're used to those conditions. They have physiologies that mean they can handle them. Their little babies, however, would normally be in those surface waters. They're not used to that variation. We saw some drop-off in their survival. But our tiny copepods that only ever live in that surface water, it's lovely and stable, 
They don't need physiologies to cope with change. They're not normally exposed to it. They were much more sensitive. We saw much more significant drop-off in their survival. And their little babies, that were really tidy, um, were even more sensitive. So what was really interesting about this was we saw that current conditions and current behaviour really helped us predict their sensitivities to these future changes. We had one species that could cope with it relatively well, or potentially a bit of a bottleneck with their reproduction, but this other species is much more sensitive because of its current day behaviour. And um, we published that in a nice journal, Happy Days. What was fascinating, though, was whilst we were there, I had a communications uh, chat with me who also runs an educational charity. And we realised whilst we were, you know, going slightly mad stuck in these tents, that you can go through your whole education in the UK without ever being taught a single marine example. And here we were on this crazy expedition, but visually really compelling. You know, scientists living at minus 40 try and get this important data about copepods. Well, that's a cool story. And so Jamie Blessing managed to persuade Catelyn, our, our sponsors, to then fund this whole education programme off the back of the work that we were doing so that we had a legacy spreading the message of the Arctic, spreading the fact that we're having a change in this remote, we're impacting this remote uh, and beautiful environment and getting kids interested in copepods. And what resulted was this fantastic programme. So if any of you, you know, are teachers or no teachers or have kids in classrooms, this is free to download from the Digital Explorer website. And we have lesson plans, we have videos, everything you need for an entire set on Arctic ecology and a little bit of climate change. We haven't gone too mad for the smaller kids on that, but it's really beautiful set of resources. And for me, this is probably one of the most rewarding parts of the trip was then seeing kids like this um, lovely chap here who's in an inner city school in London, who's never even been rock pooling, getting excited about the Arctic and getting excited about copepods. And these resources have now been used by over two and a half million kids worldwide, which for me is, is much more rewarding than my... I mean, I was proud of my paper, but this is, this is pretty awesome. And we are going back. So we have uh, an expedition going in um, beginning of May. You can Skype my students and Jamie live whilst they are in Svalbard. They're not going to be camping this time. They are going to be in a base and they're going to have hot showers. So I don't think they're really doing it properly. But you can talk to them as they are doing their science and they will be live linking to classrooms all around the world. So please do spread the word. I think it's a fantastic event. I'm really, really proud to be associated with it. Obviously, we are, we are continuing our research in the Arctic, and the big story at the moment is plastics. So whilst they're doing the Skype to classrooms, they're also going to be collecting data on plastics. We suspect the, the Arctic is where British plastic ends up. It goes out into the gyres and then ends up going into the Arctic, and so that's what we'll be looking at. I guess I just want to finish by saying, you know, expeditions like this, I didn't think I was the sort of person that could go and do this. I just said yes without thinking about it and then followed it through. And, and what I learned through, through that process was that you're capable of way more than you realise, that saying yes to something that terrifies you is pretty much always a brilliant thing. And, and this expedition has really changed, changed my life, it's changed my career path, just because I was brave stroke stupid enough to sign up to something that sounded interesting that I didn't think I was good enough to do. So I would say, say yes more um, and be brave and go and do these things that scare you slightly because that's where the magic happens. Thank you very much. You were working so hard and it was all quite stressful. Were there ever any tensions? No. And I guess you can't disappear. No, no, no. Um, again, so lucky that I was just working with fantastic people. 
So I don't think we ever got stressed. It was just a case of, you know, we're not messing around, yeah. but we're having fun while we're doing it. Yeah. And we would, we would sing bad 80s music quite a lot while we were counting <laughs> things and just, you know, bad jokes, yeah. rude scrabble in the evenings. Um, so it was a very high-spirited camp, so there was never any tensions and, and the, we never felt stressed, but yeah. we were on it when we had to be on it. And I think that environment just really sharpens your, your mind. You don't mess around. Poor Helen did get frostbite on her finger towards the end when it was actually a bit warmer because we'd, we'd relaxed a little bit. She was just getting into her sleeping bag without her gloves on. All she did was touch the zip on her sleeping bag and the tip of her finger went, went black and she said it was the worst pain she's ever experienced in her life. Thankfully it was fine, it you know, a little bit of skin fell off and it was recovered and she's fine. But yeah, you had to be on it all the time yeah. because of things like that and I think that was what was timing. What kind of training did you have beforehand? No, so we didn't have any training before we got on the plane to go to Resolute but we had a week in Resolute with a Norwegian ex-special forces hard as nails guy called Harold who trains our British forces in polar survival so I remember the, the first night that I slept in a tent at minus 40 was actually right outside the lovely warm hotel and um, we were just outside and I remember like this I don't want to be here <laughs> what am I doing this is horrid but we had because we had we had the proper you know gnarly explorers with us as well and they were helping us with the training and we knew what they were about to do was 10 times harder than what we were doing and so that I think that really made us feel like we had to just toughen up and, and get on with it because how can we complain where they're man hauling more than their body weight for 60 days to get some data for us and we've just got you know we've got a chef and we're not going anywhere so um i think that kind of made us just be a bit braver um and i remember one day we were training and there was there was wind and everything was freezing and we were trying to make the kit work without freezing right outside the base they were all sat inside having a cup of tea and we didn't know they were watching us we were like we've just got to do this otherwise we're never going to get flown out they're not going to let us go we have to prove ourselves and we did it and, and we got the tent up and we got our samples and we went in afterwards and they gave us a round of applause and that was just the most amazing feeling it's like oh they think we're, we've got it yes we can go there's, there's no easy way for training for for these conditions i think it's more about your character and your resolve are you someone who when it gets tough stands up and does it or are you someone who goes i can't do this since your first trip how much has the Arctic landscape changed? I mean, so, so I've, I, I went in 2010 and 2011, and I, have, I haven't been back since and will be going back for the first time this year, but obviously I've been, I've been following um, the data that's collected by the Canadians every year. And um, so what happens with the sea ice is it, it, it grows and shrinks every year. It, it grows in the winter, it shrinks in the summer. But the amount it's growing in the winter is getting less, the amount it's shrinking in the summer is getting more, and this year has been a particularly bad year for sea ice. So I suspect my students going to Svalbard will not see sea ice when they go because it won't be in Svalbard at that time. Um, so it is, but it's thinning as well, and that's harder to measure. So its, it's extent is less, but it's also thinning. Um, and the amount it's acidifying, I mean, uh, the Japanese uh, group were on the outskirts of the Arctic in the summer, and they were measuring conditions in the summer that we were measuring in the winter, which shouldn't, shouldn't happen. So it's, it's changing fast, yeah.